G'day, I'm Joe Kadravik. I'm the CEO of Cobalt Blue, and we're developing the Broken Hill Cobalt Project. That's a top five ex-Africa integrated mine refinery supplying chemical cobalt to the EV and battery space. Thank you. Joe, good to see you, and, and welcome back. Been far too long. You've obviously had your head down being, being busy doing a lot of things, and we're going to talk about some of those today. But um, just would like your help, um, if you don't mind, just get, to give us a sense of what's going on out there in the marketplace with regards to cobalt price um, and on the, on, the, on the demand side generally, you know, what, what's the kind of mood of the nation? Because we, we still continue to see headlines about battery designs, you know, um, excluding or trying to exclude cobalt and nickel. Um, so what, what are you hearing? What do we need to know? Is the thesis still good? Look, I think, um, so firstly, when we, when we enter into a discussion, uh, either with investment or, or commercial partners, we're really talking about bringing our project into being. Our project's first production will be 2025. So really, we're talking about a three-year forward view rather than trying to be um, focused on the next six or 12 months. What do the term curve, the CME term curve, tell us in Cobalt? Effectively flat. We've got $38 metal now. It's effectively $38 metal to calendar 24-25. Um, but what I can tell you is the mood looking at a three-year, four-year forward is starting to get um, cognizant of the demand upswing coming. Now, uh, just by way of putting a number on the table, and this is a uh, we typically ask partners what's their demand uplift in cobalt metal units from 2022 to 25, 26. Obviously, with a view to our um, our production, I would say that conservatively it's a one to three pickup. But if I did a more scientific analysis, I might find that's one to four, one to five. So there's a material demand pickup on a three year view in in the cobalt market. Uh, and I think we're in the right place to supply not only those metal units, but also the type of cobalt we represent, which is a non-African ethical high SG standard product. Right. So a few things you said there was I just want to want to understand it a little bit more. You say you know the the forecast for cobalt price, which we've discussed in the past, is fairly opaque. It's a small market, and the, 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 there's there's no sort of terminal market for it in, in, in a way. So. If it's flat, that suggests no growth. Yet the demand for non-Africa or non-DRC specific um, is good. You're saying so. I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to work out why that isn't driving price. Why that may affect your ability to um, capture increased price going forward, um, and what that does for negotiations for you. Yeah. So the the term curve I, I was talking about was actually the pricing curve. So if you like, it was what we're seeing in the next year or two is a steady price, which on one hand has is, is cognizant of a lot of material coming in, which is DRC and particularly Indonesia as well. On the other hand, we're starting this pickup. So that hand-to-mouth trade-off looks like it'll last one or two years, and that's fine by us in the sense of the pricing is great. Beyond that two-year point, we are seeing a genuine scarcity. And, and I say that because in discussions, there's a willingness to, to cut new deals, which there simply wasn't a willingness a few years ago in terms of length of offtake, um, prepayments and those sorts of issues. Okay, so the increased uh, production coming out of DRC, Indonesia, wherever, uh, at the moment will achieve that kind of, well, hopefully, maybe that consensus price, that flat price going forward. But for you, what, what the bit I care about is, 
What's it look like going forward for you when you're negotiating prices, whether that be prepay now or, you know, uh, decent long-term contracts in the future and your ability to affect the margin gain that you'd want to go, going forward? So, because you, you, we've had a conversation, yeah, o- OEMs, they want um, ethical sourced cobalt, right? It's part of the design. It's been designed into the batteries, whether OEMs or, or battery manufacturers. Um, so cobalt, they need. Um, there's a scarcity of it. So how do you capture it? How do you gain from that scenario? Yeah, so probably a start point um, to the conversation is to say that today's spot price, and, and again, the term curve, uh, it reflects that spot price forward. Look, today's price is an excellent price. It's an outstanding price for us as a project. So we're talking about a $38, $39 metal price. The sulfate um, is trading with a four in front of it. Um, we had in our PFS and, and in our update in 2020, we had a $27 price um, for the sulfate. Uh, so today when we're printing at 40, you know, for our project, a $2.50 uplift in the price is a 28% post-tax NPV lift. So there's a massive leverage for us. So um, I can look you and, and, and the investors in the eye and say, I'm quite happy with today's market. I don't need it to, to reflect a, a tighter increase in the, uh, in the balance and hence a price. So when we, when we talk to partners, it's really um, about firstly volumes, specification, then the credentials of the of the cobalt, if I can use that expression, so origin of the cobalt, the ESG credentials. Pricing is a typically third or fourth parameter in that conversation. It's because pricing is simply not as important as those other parameters in the first instance. And even within pricing, um, it's less about price but more about surety of price. So, the, so an OEM, for example, can tolerate a slightly higher offtake price as long as there's some surety around the volatility or, or, or trying to dampen that volatility as opposed to trying to get cheap cobalt, which might flex up and down. And given this, this, the overall scale of the global market, you can flex it up and down quite readily in the next few years. So um, I'd say pricing is a lower um, demand right now to those other parameters, and I'd say within pricing, certainly surety is king. Right. Okay. So, okay. I can see, this, see the parallels with some of the other battery metals there. Um, fine. So you're, you're, you're comfortable with the pricing as it is. Um, expectation is presumably that it can only get better, right? You're not concerned at all, and sorry we keep talking about it, but it keeps coming up, which is you know, cobalt being designed out of batteries. What you're hearing on your, in your road trips to the US, Korea, and, and Europe is that not necessarily the case, or certainly not? It won't affect you. Uh, this is going to shock you, Matt, but cobalt is being engineered out of batteries. There is a there is a definite trend for a high nickel battery, and there is a certain demand there for a non-nickel, non-cobalt battery, the LFP. So um, we shouldn't avoid the conversation, just tackle it head on. LFP is a formulation that's in place for, I think, just on 50% of Chinese production, but globally represents about 15% of overall EV demand. There is some um, limited appetite, I believe, in the EU and US, and I think Tesla talked about incorporating it in the battery, but our forecast shows, given the limitations of the battery, it's going to continue to occupy a 15 to 20% style niche. So as the market grows, it'll grow with it, but not cannibalise additional demand. So in our mind, it's very simply a matter of, as cobalt is thrifted, 
So the unit penetration of cobalt in an EV battery goes down times the the actual unit growth rate still means it's a very healthy demand going forward. Okay, okay. Let's let's talk about um, what I just mentioned. You you're now allowed to travel. You're now allowed to go and have those conversations with potential yep. partners, strategic or otherwise, in the US, Korea, and EU. T- to what end? What are you what are you trying to do with those conversations? Well, firstly, um, we've in the last eight weeks made up for two years of of Zoom calls, and um, culturally um, different uh, regions. Um, you, the, the interpretation as an Australian sitting on a Zoom call can be quite wrong relative to a face-to-face. So it was very good to validate um, uh, what we thought the market wanted. So with respect to the US trip we did, that was much a uh, part of a trade delegation. So we understood how the Australian and US governments are collaborating to uh, de-bottleneck critical minerals to create supply chains to the US. Now, a lot's been said of that, particularly under the current administration. But effectively, what the US want to do is underpin their own growth by sourcing from, if you like, um, preferred country status, uh, those critical minerals. And we're very happy to be part of those of, of those discussions. Um, in terms of the commercial discussions we had in Korea and, and uh, the EU, then it was really validating those calls that we had during COVID. So the first question was, ethical cobalt, we understand it'll command a premium, but how should we think about that as a seller? And I would say to you that um, ethical cobalt will become the benchmark price. Everything will be priced at a discount towards uh, um, away from that. So if you can't, even today, if you can't prove origin, you'll have a discounted metal. Um, I understand today in metal terms, um, even Russian material is starting to, to, to be priced at a discount just on the short-term influences. But certainly in the longer term, and if it's cobalt going to a consumer device, unless you've got the ESG and and the origin credentials, you won't even get a seat at the table. And that'll be the premium price. Everything will be a discount below that. Um, The other issue that we found uh, articulated to us was because they're building an industry around these batteries and now cobalt is built into that. So I guess some of that uncertainty of the last year or two with respect to substitution is going. They're now committing themselves to cobalt uh, cathodes. Uh, and because of that, there's a necessity to source today for off-taking years 25, 26. So there's a real hockey stick, if you like, coming. And because of all that, it means non-traditional type of sales arrangements are in play. There's, there's a lot of pressure being put on um, OEMs, um, funds, in fact, you know, everyone in the food chain is 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 having this pressure put on them. Some um, by you know you know state level governments, some um, federal, and we're seeing a change behaviour, change of narrative, change of discussion. Um, and there's a danger. There's a danger if you don't kind of meet these these standards, which are being you know. I, I guess it's all fairly nascent and 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 new. But if you don't meet these standards, you're going to be ostracised or, or kind of left out. And what does that do for funding for for co- companies like you? I guess it's got to be a benefit. But are you are you seeing sort of a, a change in the way that these interactions happen? You know, given you know how you possibly worked in the past. What, what's the nature of the conversations now, and you know how much of it is around the ethical component, and what are the 
benefits or disadvantages depending on which side of the fence you sit? Look, it's a really good illuminating style question. So if you like, there's two sets of standards we're, we're aiming to achieve. One is the straight technical spec, which we can talk about. Yours is more of more the ethical um, side. Within the, under the ethical banner, um, firstly, uh, it's our belief that unless you are an independently accredited uh, sustainable operation, you won't have an opportunity to place your cobalt in those consumer industries. So that's an that's a third party accredited. For example, the Initiative for Responsible Mining Assurance, uh, the IRMA initiative. That's an that's a simple example of a third party accreditation. From a producer point of view, to get accredited might take you 12 months, might take you somewhere between six and 12 months. It's a it's a large dollar cost because there's an independent um, um, series of consultants attached. And then the onus is on you not only to achieve it, but maintain that. So that's the minimum ticket to play in that ethical game. On top of that, you, you're expected to report on, you know, water, um, you know, CO2 emissions, et cetera. And in Increasingly, a top five question being asked today from the EV space is what's your CO2 footprint? What are you doing about that footprint? It's not good enough to merely report it, but within the scope one, two, and three emissions, which are just basically different categories of emissions um, uh, attached to the production and transport of your product, um, how are you reporting them? And ultimately, how are you looking to mitigate uh, those? Um, we've even gone as far as to suggest targets and then um, with abatement, offer a, a zero um, carbon cobalt. Um, but there's certainly very strong appetite in the origin, in the sustainability factors around its production and indeed freight, uh, and also CO2. And I think ultimately, to my earlier point, these will become minimum tickets in the game to, to supply to the consumer industries. It's a, it's a very interesting one, isn't it? I think the the kind of ESG components, you know, which obviously clearly with the DRC elements, you know, you, <clears throat> everyone's got a sort of heightened awareness of, of, of cobalt. Um, but this, this carbon credit element now is being added to the, to the ticket in that way. And I guess the, the concern for people, you know, investors looking in is like, how much is this adding to the overall costs of doing business? I mean, I think we're morally obliged to, mining broadly is morally obliged to sort of up its game, but is this going to affect certain companies' ability to do business economically? I mean, where, where do you stand on that? Look, we welcome it, but part of that is that we're in a very serendipitous position that we've got very strong credentials to start with. So, I mean, I guess if we started from a very poor uh, baseline, we would struggle to achieve, we may struggle, but reality is that uh, most of our CO2, for example, comes from the grid, so-called scope two emissions, um, and we'll look to, to source renewables or a large percentage of renewables in the overall project. So we can eliminate the bulk of that. Now, the other issues of the scope one, the direct uh, on-site um, footprints, we have, a, we have a process by sheer um, development avoids a lot of chemical and reagent um, consumption. And we did that because we wanted a, a simpler process and one that was effectively uh, a little bit more energy intensive, albeit renewable, but less chemical intensive. So all of those factors have meant we're in a very strong position, but irrespective of views and irrespective of your own plans, I still come to the point, unless you can create standards which meet the future consumer industry's needs, you're just not going to be in that game. Um, 
and and it's it is what it is. So we're preparing for that. We welcome it, uh, and we think we can. We think we will be the go-to Australian ethical cobalt brand of the future, and not only from the Broken Hill project, but as we look around, we think we can bring other cobalt units to bear. Well, yeah, I want to talk about that at the end, uh, quite frankly. But look, um, I think the kind of the big news that the market is reacting to um, and has kind of protected you from this kind of recent market. Well, it, it, difficulty, should we say, for, for, for most uh, public companies, not just mining or natural resources, but um, is the fact that you've got this um, demonstration plant in the process of building it. But um, so I want an update from you on wh- where that's at and what the timing is around that. But can you talk about that in the context of some of the um, recent kind of federal government interactions, grants, et cetera? Because the money side of things really important at this phase in terms of cost of money. Yeah, um, we've been very fortunate um, this calendar year. So we started off uh, in Q1 with a, a recognition by the government and, and in the Australian, the Commonwealth government used a major project status as a, as a terminology. As being awarded major project status effectively means that firstly, we're economically significant to the Commonwealth. And secondly, we fall under the critical mineral strategy. So there's two, two big pickups. Secondly, we were awarded a, a critical mineral accelerator initiative grant. That's quite the mouthful, but the key word is accelerator. So it was a grant that allowed us to um, top up on engineering and, and technical studies to de-risk the transition into production, but also accelerate by committing to those now. So partly it allowed us to invest in other technical uh, risk areas to make sure that the the, the FS, the, the, the definitive study we're producing is as robust as it can be, but partly it accelerated some studies which traditionally would be um, undertaken after the delivery of a feasibility study. For example, connection studies. So connecting to the grid is typically something a mining company would do after delivery of those studies. We're doing them now so we can transition to EPC and construction as quickly as possible in order to be in production by 2025. So the government wants us to get to that position early. The, the key issue, um, however, from an, from an international investor's perspective is the support that that's giving us and the recognition that's giving us federally. One of the top questions we get asked overseas is, what does the government think of your project and are they active supporters? And being a, combin- a recipient of the, both the status but also the grant is a very strong position to be in. Right, and and the, it's important what, what, what they think, the government thinks, but what's, what's happening on a local level? Is, it, is this just a, well, people are looking forward to the jobs that it's going to create um, or, you know, are, are you on some kind of scrutiny? Against, I guess it's coming back to the ESG component again, but we've seen so many projects shut down, closed down, or companies just were having to walk away because they're just not getting that right. So what, what's the interaction at local level look like? One of the... The adages in the mining game is that 90% of mining projects fail because of poor stakeholder engagement. And that's a whether that number's true or not, it's, it's a large amount of projects come off the rails because you don't engage with all the relevant stakeholders. A core portion of those stakeholders are local, be they state or, or, or physically local um, people in the, in the Broken Hill area. We have, and I say this without any hesitation, a very strong reputation in, in the district, we've had numerous open days, communication days. We we're looking already at some of the more intractable issues with respect to our footprint, that in terms of who we get hire. The fact is we, we are passionate about a residential workforce, uh, about employing locals that are there already or 
bringing those skills in that need to be brought in. We're looking at issues such as housing. We're looking at issues such as all of those other soft issues and social infrastructure. So, hell, we haven't even delivered a feasibility study yet, but we're pre-thinking some of the traditional derailing issues that that affect mines that don't do it well. Mm. So we take that license to operate really, really seriously, and we're comfortable that we're up, we're, we're we're kicking goals to date, but need to keep kicking them. And one of the benchmarks I'll give you is that in the local Broken Hill area, we have over 400 um, shareholders on our register, which is eight times, no, it's more, it's probably 10 times the next postcode anywhere in Australia. And that just shows you the support. Anyone who's putting skin in the game, that shows you the support behind the project. Okay, well, let's get on to the plant, demo plant. So where, where are you at the moment with that? Because I think, you know, what, I, what I'm, there's the, we're getting to really the heart of it here, the crux of it, which is, um, you need to one start choosing, uh, APC partners. You need to kind of, kind of include the kind of, the, the, the testing and trialing by strategic partners, uh, and you need to be kind of walk, you know walking sort of firmly towards a point where you can um, get you know contracts in place, get a sense of the get firmer sense of the economics with whatever um, you know structured finance package that you want to put together. So, and that comes from the, the demo plan. So, can you give me an update on that? Thank you for the question. Um, I think that. Our investment in the demonstration plant, which is a $10 million investment, we're going to, going to employ 30, 35 um, locals in, in, in creating these outcomes. So there's a strong training in, and investment in the local community. But effectively, I'll split the, the gains this way. Firstly, there's a uh, efficiency um, uh, measure that we're looking at. In other words, we're verifying on a large scale the energy that we're being put in, the water consumption, um, the recovery of the cobalt, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those are technical underpinnings, I'll call them efficiency measures, mm -hmm. that go into ultimately the economics of the project. The second area is, is effectiveness. Can we actually make the right product? Are we making the right spec? And today's spec, as we know, will change going forward. So the pilot plant from last year was tremendously useful to identify effectively two or three elements in those assays, which some partners, not all, but some partners said they'd like us to change. We'll now dispatch going forward the exact spec to those partners based on that feedback. That's a really strong position to be in. But as we know, the game um, will evolve, so will those specs. So today's spec might be a you know, a five parts per million or, or even less iron uh, content in the cobalt sulphate, that may become four, three, two, one going forward. And we're ready for that. And that then underpins the third area, which is that commercial investment area. Are we making the right product in the right volumes? And do we have the right commercial approach? And what, what this post-COVID period has done in particular is validate the assumptions that we're going to go to market to sell product and or sell equity in the plant. And I've got to say with a big smile on my face, it's going very well. Okay. Okay. And but it's been it's it's gone well at kind of you know the the pre-demo plant phase. Yeah. Um what's the expectation of some of these strategic partners in terms of the of the, of the amount of um product that and, and different types of product that you're going to be able to send them um 
you know, in, in terms of timing, volume, um, how long their testing time is, and how quickly after you've done that do you, do you expect to be able to con conclude conversations or at least pick the people that you want to work with? Because I guess it's going to be a seller's market, right? Well, yes, it is. It is certainly the um, the power is I think on our side, particularly when we're dealing with the ethical nature of the product. Um, look, I think we've effectively started a very exciting period for the for the business in the next six months. We will be producing demonstration scale, so that's a 24-7 scale uh, of operation within the next four weeks. We'll have an announcement out uh, in the third week of June with respect to mining and initial, um, excuse me, concentration operations. The learning I touched on earlier for our people, the learning about our equipment, all those efficiency measures, Importantly, we'll be dispatching 100 kilogram samples of MHP and lots of 10 kilogram samples of, of cobalt sulfate. So one sample there is more than the entire production of, of our pilot. And that allows us then to do um, sample pre-qualification. So in other words, become a, a, a certified supplier to the chain. Um, at this stage, we're looking at somewhere between 10 and 15 partners who want to get to that level with us. Um, in terms of the pre-qualification. Um, and at the same time, we've blocked out a, a six-week period uh, in August, effectively for due diligence. So we're going to shut, well, not shut the plant, we're going to run the plant, but, but effectively stop uh, other investors coming in and allow exclusive uh, access typically for 24 or 48 hours for particular companies to come in. We've set up Broken Hill um, with a with a conference room and all the, the internet and other connectivity, and they'll do their due diligence. We expect, let's say, double-digit level of interest uh, with that. They're automotives, they're battery makers, um, they're trading houses. So it's the full plethora of, of those we've been in touch with. So I think by natural consequence of the work we've done, um, that Q3 is going to be very, very exciting. At the end of that, to answer your question, once they've come, they've done the due diligence, there's a sense of um, uh, achievement with respect to the process works on that scale and that consistency, then we'll turn, um, our aim is to turn non-binding into binding outcomes. And, and we're certainly looking to do that in Q4. That's interesting. It's kind of interesting when you talk about competitive attention, um, it's, it's interesting that we are not having a discussion about the you know technology you know your ability to do it your ability to deliver to these guys I think the expectation is now having been through, been through the process as you have and their expectation is that you can definitely deliver that it's really it's really a question of ref refining the bespoke product per OEM because it, it, it you're tweaking it to their specifications um, and it's a question of how much can you do that and what is the construction of that contract. Uh, in terms of your about your I guess desire to kind of mitigate risk because you wouldn't I mean would you go all in on one strategic partner I, mean, I guess they would love you to but does, does that work in your favour or, or, or against you It's an interesting question because our thinking has been you know two years ago was the traditional risk diversification we need so many partners we can't deal with one or two but the reality when you're dealing with credit-worthy partners of the scale we are. And, and, and by way of example, as a reminder, we have LG as a, as a shareholder, or today known as LXI, credit-worthy partners, if you like, AA, AAA corporate credits. To deal with one or two 
is more than sufficient from a risk diversification and credit worthiness offtake for a, for a bank to lend to. So because we're dealing at that end of town, we can afford to contemplate one or two. So it's not about us so much, and this is something I've learned in the last six months, it's not about us um, mitigating our risk, it's the counterparty then looking at us saying, well, they're a small company, they've got a process they're still proving, I don't really want to take 100%. Maybe they do. So maybe, so from that point of view, I naturally lend to a, hey, we need two partners, potentially three type outcomes. So not from our demands, but more from the counterparty. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, 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 yes, I guess it's easy to navel gaze. <laughs> Don't give yourself a, um, yeah, the, the, the risk works both ways. So, what, Joe, that's a, that's a great update in sort of, you know, what's happened the last, the last six months and your expectation of what's going to happen in the next six months. Are there kind of, are there any kind of, red flags for you out there in the market that you need to just, you know, protect yourself against? Or do you feel that, um, again, you know, seller's market and all of that, you feel it's going to be kind of plain sailing from here on in? I mean, where, 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 are, the, where are the bumps along the road? Yeah, look, I, I never take anything for granted. You know, we've worked very hard. We've, I've been in this business for six years. The bulk of the technical and, and, and corporate team, I mean, we've had Virtually no turnover in that period. So all the all of these guys and girls are invested. Um, they all want to make this work, and they all want to look on their CV and say, "Hell, I brought in a cobalt mine." Um, so we we don't take anything for granted. Look, the if, if I had to say the red flags, the red flags um, are largely those out of our control. We're looking to we, we've got strategies in place to to balance the risks that are within control. The stuff that's out of control is really the macro. What will investor sentiment be? Can we continue to run um, and raise money in the future when we want to? Um, is, is there a negative sentiment, for example, in EV take up because markets are depressed or there's a there's a there's you know a recession or recessionary type outcomes? Um, I can't control the macro. I don't pretend to. Uh, if that happens, it happens. But I think we're in a very robust position, and certainly. Even if it happened, as soon as the macro was to get back on a neutral scale, I think we're in a very strong position. Okay. Well, like like you say, no no one knows what the future holds and, you know, what the the economy, state of the economies around the world will will do for people's spending behaviour. But um, let's let's, let's, um, wait and see what happens on that. I want to talk to you. There's one one last thing, which is, and you, you referenced it earlier, which is some of the other potential projects in country, this is obviously you've got to focus on number one, which is you know get, get the demo plant up and running and 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 do the things that you, we've just talked about. But there's there's some other potential revenue flows for you um, through kind of remediation um, type exercise elsewhere in Australia. I and mean, we've talked about it in the past. So are, are you paying much attention to that, or is it one hundred percent paying a lot of attention to it? Not not trumpeting it purely because the waste streams, as we call it, cobalt waste streams or the rehabilitation side, mm. typically has a commercial counterparty. Not always. Sometimes there's, there's abandoned mines that we're dealing with. But we are in active test work. We are in active discussions. There's some very exciting opportunities, which unfortunately I can only just hint at um, because of their commercial sensitivity. Um, but I think the ability for us to commercialise cobalt that's currently sitting there in waste in mining waste i'll be very specific not so much black mass because australia has very little black mass today but in mining waste is very strong i think the alignment of of that industry with 
recycling limits and standards as, as proposed by, for example, the EU Parliament, which is proposing a minimum recycling limit for cobalt in EV batteries by 2030, and that limits 12%. Um, I think, therefore, there's a, a material market for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, look, Matthew, I'd have to say it's we're probably three months or more from, from me allow, being allowed to publicly say this is what we want to do. But the, the quantum of units available is potentially as high as the quantum of units of, that are already out of the, the broken your project. So this is a, this is a game changer. Um, the other thing I'll put to you in terms of other projects is we are looking, um, as you know, to convert MHP to sulphate, to cobalt sulphate as part of our project, but not necessarily do that final step at Broken Hill District and are looking to place that by over-investing in a sulphate refinery in a port scenario and particularly in areas where there are other cobalt units, for example, Queensland or WA, um, we think we can scavenge um, up new cobalt units and, and increase our three and a half thousand tonnes to a much greater number. So uh, I think investors can look forward to an update from the company where we articulate the strategy whereby we create uh, the first Australian cobalt sulphate refinery, potential to integrate into a downstream precursor area, uh, but certainly look to bring to the market more cobalt than just from the Broken Hill project. That's a very exciting um, um, project for us, but it's one we'll have to make good with deeds in the next six months, and, and I look forward to updating you. Okay, some nice bl- potential blue sky coming down the line in terms of that growth streak. Um, well, look, Jake, I appreciate you coming on the the show, giving us an update. I know um, you're, you're, you're a busy boy uh, at the moment, and um, stay in touch. Let us know how things get on, okay? Matt, it's always a pleasure. Thank you.